I am Major Robert Rose, and welcome to Thinking Inside the Bots, the podcast of operations group at the National Training Center, Fort Irwin, California. Thinking Inside the Bots brings you best practices from the Army's experts in combined arms operations. Today, we will be discussing how to think about battalion command post survivability in modern warfare. Command post survivability has become a critical topic in the Army. For years, Army command posts have grown in size as we attempted to maximize situational awareness. We consolidated staff, collected liaison officers, and placed bands of flat screen TVs displaying the feeds of the fight and regularly updated PowerPoints. To allow for all this, command posts expanded into clusters of tents that a higher echelon would put P.T. Barnum to shame. We could do this during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, but we cannot do it today. With the spread of drones and equipment to detect signals, command posts have become easy to identify and target. A recent article in Military Review, The Graveyard of Command Posts, a recent article in Military Review, The Graveyard of Command Posts, by Lieutenant General Beagle, Brigadier General Slider, and Lieutenant Colonel Errol, highlighted this problem. At the National Training Center, we replicate a modern threat to command posts, and have been pushing units to increase their survivability while maintaining their functionality and effectiveness. The most vulnerable command posts are at the battalion level, which operate within artillery and small drone range of enemy forces. To discuss this topic, I'll be interviewing two of our observer coach trainers, our OCTs from Scorpion Team, Major Stephen Piles, a coach for operations officers, and Captain Seth Rivetta, a coach for signal officers officers. Welcome to the show. You recently co-authored an article called Preparing for Command Post Survivability on the Modern Battlefield in the Army Communicator. What drove you to write that article? Uh, Sir, so Captain Rivetta, I've had 15 rotations here at the National Training Center, five of which have been since the republication of FM30. In my time here, I've been able to see how armor brigade combat teams, striker brigade combat teams, and infantry brigade combat teams are able to effectively employ the main command post. I started off by writing an article which was published in the April edition of The Communicator, Examining Survivability in the Operations Environment, Command and Control. So that one I focused primarily on the resources to help a commander understand how to best prepare themselves for coming to the National Training Center. Based off of some of the feedback we got from that, I went to my S3 trainer, Major Piles, and asked if he would uh, help me out with uh, building a recommendation because the first one was very much just informational and I wanted to be able to give commanders a recommendation on how to focus training. And in addition to that, myself and Seth, we've always had an opportunity to communicate with the force. One of Lead Six's big directives is make sure that we communicate with the force. Uh, we wanted to explain the trends that we are seeing from the main command post in reference to survivability. As you mentioned in the previous articles from Lieutenant General Beagle, that this is a, um, a main hot topic today because as an FM3-0 explains, you can be observed from anywhere. Gone are days are like the battle lines are being drawn. So we wanted to make sure that we communicate those trends to future rotational units as they come to the National Training Center and help employ some tactics and best practices to prepare themselves for their follow-on operations. What have you been recently observing with how battalions are employing their command posts? Well, the first thing we have observed, uh, and being a counterinsurgency legacy officer myself, gone are the days of the, what they call the Takma Halls, where you have the large command posts with various uh, command post systems and structures. Those days are gone. Now we're looking at units that are coming here. They're trying to slim down, uh, become more mobile, more agile, and, and they're experimenting with those. We have seen units come with uh, with their 
main command posts and expando vans uh, come also with it uh, with their main command posts and JLTVs and GP small tents, um, general purpose tents, and they're also coming in with their M1068 uh, track vehicles, which is camo netting. So again, so many units today are trying to explore how to be more agile and more mobile in order to be ahead of the enemy and to avoid the enemy. And so we're so we're definitely taking a look into that. Seth, anything you want to add? Sir, like you said, we we've seen a lot of uh, units come through uh, trying to figure out how to downsize their footprint while setting up their main command post. But one of the big trends that we've been seeing, honestly, is they, they tend to try to go too far in the opposite direction and lose some of that situational awareness. So we're, we were trying to look at how you could best build that situational awareness while still maintaining that survivability. And I think this is actually a real interesting area of innovation in the Army and kind of showing how you can have this like bottom-up grassroots efforts to find the best solution to a problem because yeah, I remember a couple of years ago while still in, in a unit, there was a sense that units didn't understand how to have effective command posts and there was an attempt to standardize it across my old division. And it's just kind of, it's interesting in the army to see this change of like, we've identified a problem set and we're allowing for this innovation. And as you're saying, like units come here and we've seen so many different approaches to it. And and it's amazing like, how many different organizations are trying to solve this. Yeah, in your article, you know, one thing that was like, very innovative, I think a great way to look at it was your uh, survivability considerations model. Could you explain a little bit about that? Absolutely, sir. So uh, the survivability model is something that I was trying to be able to give to units before they came to the National Training Center, typically during their leaders training program. So I could hand that off and give them at least three months to start preparing for how the NTC likes to fight. So that model that is in the article is, is based off the National Training Center. However, if we uh, use that model, you could potentially change it for whatever area of operations that you're going into. Giving that tool to a unit before they come to the National Training Center, I felt was one of the most important things to help them really understand how to best prepare for where they're going to be fighting. And to move on further for that, the biggest thing we wanted to show, FM3 show talks about the nine forms of contact. So when so when Seth created the model, it was to, to spur a discussion and say, look, let's have a discussion about how we can help our main command post survive under those nine forms of contact. You take a look at the mitigation efforts and say, hey, and when it comes to direct fire, that's pretty easy. Indirect fire obviously is the most common. But some of those other efforts that can be left behind when units are trying to train and prepare for the National Training Center and as well as prepare for follow-on operations. You cannot neglect the C. Bernie effect. You cannot neglect the influence uh, that you have within the uh, operating environment. So that was why that model was so important that we wanted to communicate with the force. It is giving units another lens to take a look at as they're trying to survive their main command post. Yeah, and I'd really like to kind of expand a bit on like your model highlights the importance of understanding the threat and operational environment for your survivability solution. Can you talk a little bit more about why that's important? Uh, sir, so I think that's important because if you understand what the threat in the environment is, you can start going ahead and, and putting training against that to build a solution to be more survivable. Uh, so at the National Training Center, based off of how the Op 4 fights here, we were able to highlight five high payoff mitigations, which are dispersion, terrain masking, rapid displacement and mobility, uh, 360 security, and then reconnaissance. And also further, in order to operate in someone's backyard, if you use like the sports analogy, 
you want to understand as much as you can about your opponent's backyard, how they will employ their nine forms of contact on you. And that is why we wanted to take a look into, as far as understanding the operational environment, you want to understand the enemy and all of the elements that that enemy is going to operate in so that way you can be effective in what you're trying to do to achieve your in-state, to achieve your version of success. You know, when it comes to survivability, your operational environment, the terrain, you know, in particular is critical because a unit that's coming here versus going to the Joint Readiness Training Center in Louisiana, there's very different approaches to survivability because there you have a lot of ability to conceal in the woods there. Here in the desert, in the mountains out here, it's harder to achieve that concealment. Uh, there are some urban areas here, and that's one thing that we've been um, focused on here is pushing units into urban areas for concealment, but kind of understanding, you know, that you probably need a different command post layout here. It's important to highlight that. And then the the threat, too, you know, that y- you described. I- I've been thinking a bit about this, too, because I was a OCT at JRTC as well a few years back. But, you know, the threat used to be special purpose forces. It used to be these small elements. It was when we're much, we were a bit more focused on the hybrid threat threat. And so we were worried about SPF, special purpose forces, infiltrating behind our lines and attacking command posts, which led you towards tight command posts that you could easily secure from direct fire and like squad attacking it. But now we are in an environment where the threat is more long-range artillery, it's aerial observation, and that's leading to a focus much more on dispersion for survivability. We have a famous case of Pearl Harbor. One of the issues of Pearl Harbor is they thought the threat was saboteurs. So they consolidate all their aircraft on a runway, on the runways in Hawaii, which when they're actually attacked from the air became easy targets. You know, and it's just like, it's important to understand the threat because security is very different based on, on what you will face. And um, so doing a bit more into that, so like, how do you, uh, you know, out here understand the threat? How do you disperse command posts while keeping essential functions and effectiveness? So from a maneuver perspective, and I would definitely let Seth come in when it comes to the command control signal architecture behind that. What we are coaching here in terms of what we are seeing is units can no longer form themselves into clusters. Like I said, gone are days of that large talk mahal that left a very large signature. You can see it from a distance because now you have to worry about aerial threats. And what we are coaching from now is that you need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, meaning you may have to have two or three vehicles off in certain areas, probably 50 to 75 meters apart, leveraging your camel nets, leveraging, like hiding yourself uh, within the terrain, tucking yourself up against mountainsides, intervisibility lines. These are things that we're coaching them. And we saw something like this back in January when uh, when we had the great civil war between the Black Horse, 1st 11th ACR and 2nd 11th ACR, where they were really leveraging that dispersion. I'm talking about like, I would have to get out myself and walk from one command vehicle and 50 meters to the other. And what they were trying to do is they were trying to hide themselves uh, within the terrain. So when we put an unmanned aerial asset up in order to take a photo of that, we were really impressed about how they were able to blend within the terrain, and it took a while in order to find them as we were coming on shift. So, just like Major Powell said, the Black Horse Civil War, very unique rotation. Uh, We were able to see how the other side fights, and one thing that I found very fascinating was how much the commander was willing to go with a mission command philosophy versus a command control, which is what we normally see. Because he knew that his uh, companies were well-trained, he was much more willing to just give some general guidance and tell 
them this is what I want to see. And then he was willing to be just outside of that communication range uh, up until the point where he saw that there would be a friction point, then he would jump his mobile command post forward so that he would be able to control the fight as needed. So that was that was a pretty unique situation there. Some of the other dispersion techniques that I think work best include extending the full length of your fiber reel for that STT because that is such a, a large emission signature. You have a 400 meter uh, reel that comes standard with any STT. You can ask for longer ones uh, through the Army Supply System. So you could potentially get that cable running up to 800 meters away and then you have one of your largest signatures extremely far from your command post making it so that is more survivable. Yeah and, and so just for our listeners to clarify so the, the Black Horse Civil War. So these are Black Horses uh, normally plays the uh, opposing forces here the enemy and we had a rotation and Black Horse played both the enemy their normal role but also the friendly forces and so it was it was enlightening to see these kind of professional desert warriors go at it and it just kind of showed the importance again of of understanding your operational environment training for it understanding the threat because black horse they get so many repetitions out here in the desert they understand how you can actually hide in the desert using these techniques using camouflage dispersion offsetting their communication systems there's a lot you do and it's very hard to find black horse command posts and it just shows you can this you can achieve success here and I'll transition a little bit for um, I want to put in a main command post versus a combat trains command post, a CTCP, and a field trains command post, an FTCP. How do you think about that? I don't want to say it all depends. But when we think about problem sets in this perspective, the one area that commanders and staff should think about is, okay, based off the personality of a commander and how that commander uses information in order, in order to make informed decisions, the main command post obviously is going to be the central hub. So you're looking at all your communication platforms, the four-channel place plan, needs to be effective in there. But you cannot neglect the combat trains command post also having that same redundancy because there may come a time where the combat trains command post may need in order to assume pretty much command of the battlefield as either the main command post is jumping or the main command post unfortunately becomes degraded or destroyed. And also with the field trains command post, you still cannot lose that communications platform there. So you're looking at a four-channel pace that is effective that in order to allow information flow that allows the commander to make those form decisions. So we look at things from FM, to the JPCP, the Joint Battle Command Platform, possibly even high-frequency radio as well. And obviously, an in, in emergency is pretty much based off the personality of, of how that battalion fights and based off of where the left and right limits are within the battlefield. So you have to take a look at how are we comfortable with these basic systems, and then you can add other layers of systems on top of that that still feed that information flow. But at any moment, you still need to maintain your agility and you still need to maintain your mobility when you're in uh, the operation environment. But sir, I'll, I'll go ahead and look at this as a uh, signal officer. I think you have to identify, like Major Powell said, what that four-channel pace is going to look like. And and how do we achieve that redundancy? Because if you look at the systems that are MTOed to the different command posts, they are not all created equal. A great example is the Ford Support Company does not have a high-frequency radio assigned to it. So you have to try to figure out where that's going to come from, who's going to flip that bill. And, and very often it is the S6 shop or someone else from the HHC. So just trying to figure out how we're going to leverage all of our assets within the battalion to ensure that all command posts are created equal, which is a comment that almost no one ever says. As you're looking at these different command posts that a battalion can field, focusing on the function of them and, and identifying what their purpose is, to me it helps a lot. So the main command post they control the fight where your current ops is, it's where your future ops also likely is in a battalion so that those are uh, intermeshed because you need to make decisions fairly fast at the battalion level. 
But then also looking at the combat trains command post, one of the best purposes I've seen defined of it is that it is your triage center. So that's what it's really your emergency resupply, your maintenance your medical where your role one is so it's focused on that it's also then a redundant command post if the main command post is lost and finally your field trains command post ftcp that's your endurance so it's your regular resupplies it's looking for to ensure that you have continuous sustainment in your battalion it focuses on that and that's where you have the assets and then once you've established those purpose then you can figure out what systems and what people to have in each of those locations to optimize and then if you have that good pace plan primary all alternate contingency emergency communications plan. You have to have the right systems. As you kind of mentioned with the high frequency radio, you can say, yeah, we're going to use HF. But if you don't have that in your FTCP, they're not going to be able to use it. So there's a balancing act there of what systems you actually have and then actually rehearsing that those systems work so that when you disperse these different command posts, they can actually talk to each other. I mean, that's you can talk dispersion all you want, but if there isn't that shared understanding at the command posts and ability to quickly communicate, changes in the fight, then dispersion ends up not working. You just end up having to cut off command posts that's not playing any role in the fight. Sir, I would also like to highlight that with those different command nodes, you should have one true common operating picture. So if the commander does have to fall back to the CTCP or the FTCP, they should have the same common operating picture that was in the main command post. So that all comes down to standardization within your standard operating procedures. And that all has to be completely fleshed out before coming to the National Training Center through some form of home station training. Yeah, and so another thing that you, you mentioned in your uh, article when you're talking about all these different command posts is the site selection for them. So, so discuss a bit about how you know how to find a good site and the reconnaissance involved in uh, that site selection. Uh, sir, so that is my bread and butter as an F6. Uh, so uh, I always have the operations sergeant major tied to my hip. So typically I'll go and offer up three to four potential locations, three forward, one back, just in case we do have to uh, move backward because all of them are going to be situational trigger-based. So I will go and say, based off of the map and the analysis that I'm doing with our radio coverage, this is where I'm recommending we go, and then I'll give the pros and cons to each one. Then, as the uh, MCP is finishing up with their setup, myself and the Sergeant Major would very often go and do a site recon of those locations so that we could validate, yes, this is a good site, or no, we're going to end up using this for a company area. Coming from the battalion executive officer perspective, when I used to launch the operations Sergeant Major as well as my S6 out after they conducted their line of sight analysis, I will always tell them to at least have two sites available. So you have to be proactive, you know, instead of being reactive. And what I mean by being proactive, just like how the units, just like how we're constantly leveraging reconnaissance assets for our maneuver companies or some maneuver platoons, you also have to do the same for your main command post as well. You cannot let that be a last minute decision to jump this uh, command architecture somewhere and then it will become ineffective for the actual operation. Now you can't talk and now you can't help the fight. Right. And that's and that is something that we have to keep in mind. Remember reading um, in the article to what you laid out before by Lieutenant General Beagle is that your command post is a service and its purpose is to ensure that the commander is getting information that he or she needs in order to make informed decisions, but also coordinating, synchronizing those assets that are going to help them achieve their objectives. So with that in mind, you have to remain proactive, have at least a minimum of two sites uh, picked out so that way when they do go to those sites, they say, yes, this is suitable. It has the right terrain. We're able to mask here. That way it'll cut down the setup 
setup time, and that way we can get the main command post back into the fight. I would like to also highlight that we absolutely must get comfortable being uncomfortable because the enemy always has a vote and we are in constant contact uh, through one of the nine forms. So I highly recommend that no command post stays in position for over 18 hours because if you're in position for that long, the enemy has had some sensor to be able to locate you and eventually you will have at a minimum indirect called upon your position. Yeah, and I think that in the desert out here, it is so hard to achieve, you know, concealment, but also cover unless you're in an urban environment. So that is important to that mobility, you know, reducing the ability of the enemy uh, to target you. Yeah, I just really wanted to highlight, you know, something that uh, uh, Seth said on, you know, the S6's role uh, during mission analysis, during the military decision-making process in identifying command post sites. I mean, that is a great staff wisdom, the so what during mission analysis and it was it was a big thing when I was you know, on battalion staff is if the SITs laid out good command post locations it really helped you then develop a, your maneuver plan during course of action development I mean you should be leading with that so you understand where you need to go and how you're going to phase command post jumps for your maneuver plan and then so one other thing that your, uh, your article highlights is the idea of 360 security could you uh, talk a bit about that yeah, absolutely sir so uh, there's the obvious 360 security trying to make sure that you don't have some armored vehicle come roll up on your main command post. I really look at it as a holistic 360 security where you're looking at each form of contact. So how can we defend our networks is also part of that 360 security. So how are we utilizing our uh, 255 Sierras, which is our cyber warrant, uh, to do that defensive cyber operations within our own internal network? How are we leveraging all of our air defense artillery assets, our stingers, our whatever ADA platforms are attached to us? How are we leveraging those across the battlefield to throw up that extra additional security bubble around us. The only thing to add about 360 security, you, you really highlighted a lot. I mean, just understand the battle lines are no longer you're on one side and I'm on the other side. It is 100% your 360 all around you and also up top as well. What we are starting to see in many of the videos and in many of our LPDs that we got from uh, Colonel Retire John Antall, which I highly recommend uh, for, uh, for units to uh, enlisted services, is that you can be attacked from anywhere. If you can be seen from anywhere, you can pretty much be attacked from anywhere, from long range, up top, and side to side. So as we are talking about dispersion and as we are talking about site selection, security can never be neglected. At the moment that you come upon a site, you need to ask yourself, how can we ensure that we secure ourselves for the X number of hours that we plan to be here? If units come with that type of mentality, they will always have what they need in order to be on guard, in order to prevent not only just the armored vehicle casually driving by their location, spotting them, but also anything that's coming from above as well. And I think the retired uh, Antol's uh, lectures, you can find them on uh, on YouTube. He's really highlighted uh, some of the Nardona Karabakh war, just the vulnerability of command posts and all the different ways that they can be detected. And I think sometimes, you know, I like the, this kind of more proactive definition of security. Because just when, you, when you hear about some of this, it can create a very pessimistic feeling that command posts are all just, you know, get destroyed. The scariest place to be on the modern battlefield is in a command post. But we start looking at more proactively. Yeah, it's dispersion, it's concealment, it's decoys, deception, but then it's also proactive counter-reconnaissance, it's counter-unmanned aerial systems, electronic warfare against uh, UAS, or it's proactive counterfire. you know, targeting the things that might target you first, so that whenever the enemy's making a decision to target something that may or may not be a command post, they're thinking, is this worth shooting at if I'm going to receive counter battery. So I think when you start looking at it as a holistic problem, it starts becoming 
becoming more solvable. And yeah, you might not make the command post 100% survivable. I mean, nothing is ever going to be 100% in warfare, but you can dramatically increase it. You know, and now that units have an understanding of the threat and operational requirement, what would be your training recommendations for them? To begin with that, and of course, Seth, all that stuff, he has a lot of training recommendations for here. From Armor Brigade combat team perspective, our biggest showtime is the gunneries and our FTXs. And what I've always, at least I tried to employ it when I was battalion executive officer, and I try to coach other units as well. Leverage those training events at home station to get all of your systems out. The configurations that your commander wants to put it in, whether red, amber, green, command posts, however he wants to design those clusters and how he wants to look at his com- combat training command post and this field trains command post, how those configurations are going to be as we're trying to employ the agile as well as the mobile command post. Employ, employ it out to the field, have all your systems running, and then have a red team actually try to penetrate your systems. Whether it's through the nine forms of contact, you want to get the reps in about, hey, how is my command post going to be survivable? When I'm here at home station, have an up four. Create them in order to try to see what does it look like for them to attack command posts. Are we as survivable as we think? And do not be afraid to throw the drone in the sky to have a snapshot of, okay, this is how we look from above as well. Just based off of your resources as well as limitations of a home station training event. And those lessons learned, not only in addition to the gunnery scores, those lessons learned in reference to how we were able to make our command post survival, that is what you can refine or develop into your company standard operating procedures or, or SOPs. Seth? So I would like to say that you can use anything as an opportunity to refine your own standard operating procedures, specifically with the main command post. A best practice that you can use is to set up your main command post on Motor Pool Monday and set up your systems. Just have the staff battle track how maintenance is happening and, and the flow of all the systems going through. So that is just an example. I I am always down to say, read the doctrine because the answer's out there. There's some great doctrine that honestly I'd never heard of until I came to the National Training Center and started doing my own homework so I could better coach, train, and mentor young signal officers. So I I know this is going to be a dry portion, but I'm going to read out five pieces of doctrine that I think are are pretty critical in order for you to understand how to be best survivable and get your main command post to a functional point before you can even start thinking about the survival portion. So training circular 6-0.2 is a train the mission command warfighting function for battalions and brigades. That's July 2019. That one is is great because it goes through and outlines the different gunnery tables for validating your commander and your command post. That that one highly recommend if you're going to start anywhere, start there. Army training publication 6-0.5 command post organization and operations. Great spot for you to find out what your main command post should be doing for you. Training circular 3-22.69 Advanced Situational Awareness. It's a strange read at times, uh, but it's very enlightening because it goes over stuff that you would never think of, like the distance in which a cigarette that is lit can be seen by the naked eye. Something I'd never thought of until doing research. That might give an ops sergeant major the inkling to get a smoke area with some covering uh, in the field. Army Technique Publication 3-12.3, Electronic Warfare Techniques. Uh, Specifically, Chapter 7 outlines electronic protection techniques, which is really great on how to mask your electronic signature. A lot of people don't ever think about that, Uh, especially at the battalion level where you don't have electronic person in your main all the time. And then Army Technique Publication 3-37.3. 3-4, 3-4, survivability operations. Specifically, Chapter 7 covers dispersion techniques. Again, a great read uh, for you just get back to the basics. Awesome, sweet doctrine there. So we will link all of those in the show notes if you can't remember them.
You know, so you have this doctrine, you have this train. I think that one of the key things then is to take this all and codify it in a command post SOP. Can you talk a little bit about what command post SOPs you've seen from units and just if you've seen them be effective and how you develop and validate one? We do our best to take a look at the command post SOPs that come here at the National Training Center. You do see many that probably have not been touched in a while. However, they still have larger command post signature, what we talked about earlier, where you know have every single system, every single vehicle, attached to each other, which is okay. However, they may employ them differently here. And we always tell them, hey, when you come here to the National Training Center, ensure that you take these lessons learned and you update your SOPs. We also have seen SOPs where they have similar, like a lighter signature, where you may have two or three vehicles and it it will literally have it in a configuration of the red, amber, green configurations. Now that I've seen mostly, they're talking about the systems that they are employing within their main command post. Mostly with a red status, it is a FM capability and as well as a uh, joint command battle platform. And then they just go up from there based off the capability that they're putting into. But however, the smaller signature of just one to two vehicles operating as a buddy team, again, 50 to 75 meters apart. I've seen that probably one time here and it it has been employed. But that was mostly from the Black Horse 1st 11th ACR element there. We just ask units as you're at home station and and you continue to do your leadership professional development programs and and you're starting to do your research of how you can make your CPs agile and mobile to, to, to take out your SOPs and update those as best as you can prior or prior to coming out here. And then just continue to be fine. We're, we're here to help, we're here to learn, and we're here to help train. Seth? All right, you hit most of the good stuff there, sir, but uh, I'd like to point out battle drills in your command post SOPs. That will absolutely make it so that at any time anyone can walk in and understand how they should be reacting to different events. The, the units that do the best out here have very thorough battle drills. The command post uh, standard operating procedure, the, the CPSOP, is a very important document for getting a survivable command post, an effective command post, and, and an effective staff as well, and just effective personnel in it, because, yeah, let's face it, there's a lot of changeover in battalion staffs. You know, you're going to become to the National Train Center, you're probably going to get three new second lieutenants showing up to your unit, who you're going to throw in to be a night battle captains, and if you have a good command post SOP, people who are newly joining your unit can read them, can understand their role in setting up the command post, setting up the systems, what to prioritize so that a command post can become operational as soon as possible. And then when they're in there, how to be effective, you know, what the products are expected, you know, like where you can position things to create that shared understanding just within the command post so everyone can see the common operational picture and be able to understand what's going in the fight, no matter what their role is in the command post. And when you have all this, and a small staff can be amazingly effective. A very large staff that isn't trained on its SOPs and understand and its roles can be very ineffective. A small effective staff allows you to have a small concealed survivable command post. And then, you know, so if you're, uh, if you're listening to this and you're uh, about to deploy to the National Training Center, what's one thing you would focus on? Sir, obviously I'm a signal officer by trade, but I'm not going to forget my brethren across the staff. I would say make sure that all systems in your command post, and by all systems I mean your your intel systems, your fire systems are absolutely integrated into your, your network. Uh, that tends to be one of the things that we forget to do, and then uh, in the 11th hour trying to figure it out here at the National Training Center. So uh, avoid that friction and have it pre-established before coming to the National Training Center. I would say just continue with the dialogue among the commander and the 
staff about how they employ the main command post and what can the staff provide the commander when operational tempo is high. It's okay to practice it, but how we still need to continue to talk about it. Again, we give the lenses of the nine forms of contact. So if you're 30 days out or you're 90 days out, never neglect to continue that conversation on, okay, this is our game plan. This is our battle drill, how we can be proactive and respond to the certain threats that come under the nine forms of contact. Well, this has been a very engaging and enlightening uh, conversation. Thank you, Captain Seth Rivetta. Thank you for having us, sir. And thank you, uh, Major Stephen Piles. Truly appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Major Rose. As always, our observer coach trainers are available to assist units. I invite you to look at our mill suite for the latest products from Operations Group and subscribe to Operations Group Tat Talk on YouTube for short lessons on successful techniques. Thank you for listening to Thinking Inside the Bots, the podcast of Operations Group at the National Training center.